just a normal Christian man being faithful in the place where the Lord had him. It happened to be a place where there were a lot of eyes on him at the end of his life, and he was faithful to the end. And for that, we can be grateful. Hello, and welcome to Thinking Out Loud. I'm your co-host, Nathan Rittenhouse. And I'm your co-host, Cameron McAllister. Well, Cameron, we often talk about hope, but talking about hope often, well, and can definitely include talking about sad things as well. And today we want to reflect a little bit on the life of Tim Keller and a little bit of grief at the at his death, but I think overall a lot of celebration and a lot to be thankful for. And so I'm looking forward to processing with you and reflecting together on some of the things that I appreciated about his life and teaching. And I'm sure there are many, um, and probably even more deeply so for you. Uh, I think he's you, somebody I know has been a big influence in your life. And so I'd love to hear a little bit about, um, when, when you think of, when, when you thought of his passing, um, what popped in your head, what was your response? And we'll take it from there. Yeah. My first response was this was a life worth celebrating. So it was a bittersweet moment, also a refreshing moment. We've been going through a time when a lot of, a lot of, there have just been many people who we thought we knew. And then we come to find out that they had double lives, that fame had gotten to their heads, so to speak. But this is not the case with Tim Keller. So that, so there was something refreshing about it. But yeah, just if you looked at, I just thought this was a, this is a life worth celebrating. There was definitely a sadness, I think for the, which is, I'm not generally a very emotional person. I know that'll come as a shock to most of our listeners, mm. <laughs> but I did find myself tearing up when I, when I got the news and as I was, I was starting to read through the, the tributes, but yeah, I mean, Tim Keller has been an important voice for so many of us, I think, because there was a, there's a steady, there was a steadiness to Tim Keller, a kind of maturity. I think there's, there's no, it's no accident that a lot of people refer to him referred to him frequently as a kind of spiritual father because there's that yeah that steadiness so it's a striking contrast i'm trying to figure out a way to say this in a non-snarky manner i just go for it well let me just say there's a striking contrast between tim keller's manner of communication and many other christian ministers who are popular so many people would i would often hear messages from speakers who were quote passionate speakers and they would be very, you know, shot through with a huge sense of urgency. They would indeed be very passionate. They would use what I call sometimes pleading pastor voice. And, you know, a lot of people do love that, gobble it up. It, it can be infectious. I'll confess for me, I find it a little bit exhausting. Oh, Keller I'm so tempted to opposite. ask you to do the pleading pastor voice, but I think in order no, oh, to, no, I can't in, do, in order to not, honor I, Tim I, Keller, we're going to continue without doing that. But know that that's out there somewhere, people. That. Just remember that. <laughs> yeah. But no, but so when I first, when I first heard Tim Keller, I remember, you know, he has a, he has a great sonorous voice. He's a little nasally. And from a public speaking standpoint, he does just about everything wrong (laughs) in many ways. There are a lot of ums and lots of awkward sort of pauses, but the magnificent depth of his material speaks volumes immediately. This is a man in total command of the subject or in, in the best command he can muster of whatever subject he's addressing. True, just absolute love of scripture that comes through. I mean, just this was a this is a man of the word. You can just tell. And this is a man of prayer because there's there's that depth. 
there's the special quality of, of groundedness that comes along with that. But also, Keller reminded me a lot of my dad. Not in the way hmm. he talked. My dad has a, has a Scottish accent and all, but in in the books he would read. So uh, I grew yeah. up, had the tremendous privilege of growing up with with a dad who is who reads very widely, and has a great historical consciousness when he when he thinks about the world and philosophy and the history of ideas, but also paid close attention to sociology. And Tim Keller, I would notice, would would quote from many of the same authors. I my dad had been quoting to me for years. He would quote frequently from Robert Bala and The Habits of the Heart. I mean, these were these are interesting books for a pastor to quote. You don't You're not going to find that. them in a religion section at Barnes and Noble. Correct. Yeah. So he was so I mean, you're not just getting Keller was so I'm just going to say something that I can say because I'm a member I am a Presbyterian, so I can say this. Presbyterians can be an insular bunch. You know, it, it that, that sometimes can be the the case that we don't really stray too far from our own little little circles, and so we tend to we like Presbyterian voices, and we go to Presbyterian conferences, and we read Presbyterian authors. And if this person isn't Presbyterian, well, they're maybe a little bit suspect. But Tim Keller read very widely, and that breadth would come into his sermons, and it greatly enhanced his message. So I was immediately. I mean, as soon as I started listening to him, a lot of people had, had recommended him. I, I loved his presentation. I loved how even Keeley was. Not that he couldn't get animated. Tim Keller would sometimes get worked up, but this is worked up for Tim Keller. <laughs> you know, so it's right. not like, yeah, different it's scale. not going to sound like Matt Chandler worked up. But he, yeah, I just, I loved the depth. I loved the way he, I mean, he was clearly a man in love with, with, with God's word and a, a true person of prayer. I loved hearing about his relationship with his wife. Tim Keller and Kathy were, you know, they those they they worked together. Kathy worked, helped him with his sermons. Was she is she's a she's a very serious and deep thinker in her own right. So there was just this amazing stability to Keller that mm-hmm. I that I found deeply admirable. And so that was yeah that was part of my my first impression. And I'm probably I told you I've I've listened to I can't even name how many sermons of Keller's I've listened to over the years. So I don't I don't know that I've I've heard a few color sermons. Um, I read some books for sure. Um, I, I I kind of always had a little bit of a um, well. So I went to Gordon Conwell. Tim Keller was a Gordon Con- very you know That's Gordon right. Conwell was yeah. very proud of Tim Keller. Um, so he came and yes. spoke there and, <laughs> and whatnot. So yeah, a little shout out there. Um, and so there's a lot I learned from him in his books. Um, I think I always had like in my mind like used him as a a little bit of a sparring. He, so he wrote Center Church, which talks about like urban church planting and development and the importance of of urban yeah. churching and all that, um, which is great. And God bless him for doing that. And I always thought of like, what's the opposite of Tim Keller as someone who lives in a very rural area? So he was always kind mm-hmm. of like my mental interlocutor on like, how do you take that principle and apply it outside of the city kind of thing? So um there was there's some fun to that for me but i think back so steadiness i think is the is the word that you used that best describes kind of all that you said over the last few minutes and i i believe that one of the reasons for that is that tim keller seemed to me to be somebody who is extremely careful with his words so so yeah he might have a weird pause or an uh but whatever that next sentence was was really well thought out um and mm-hmm. and meant something 
And so for people like me who are a little bit more of a shotgun approach or just spew a whole bunch of stuff out there and hope something's helpful, mm -hmm. um, he had a very precise and concise way of, of saying and communicating deep lines. And so that, that precision and carefulness with words was really one of those things that I think attributed to his steadiness. The other one is, is that Tim Keller was, it, it took a long time for Tim Keller to be the Tim Keller that we think of when we think of Tim Keller. So he had a, he That's didn't right, have yeah. this, he didn't have this meteoric rise that you sometimes see in the next hip youth pastor. Um, he, he spent a lot of time in the trenches, just a lot in, um, relatively rural to obscure urban, um, ministry of, of growing and learning and studying his, his, his craft as it were, and his calling and his, um, so there's just a, a long history to him. And another thing that I respect him for is he, along with uh, N.T. Wright, would be one that Tim Keller never wrote anything until he was 50 years old. That's so he right. got a he got that's a relative. Remarkable. Yeah, he, I think somebody should check that, but I'm pretty sure that's true. That he had a pretty no, slow he, he had a pretty slow start on his um, on his general I would call it general. Um, pastoral, you know, outside of his local mm -hmm. congregation. And I'm sure there were denominational things, but I think his his broader impact on American evangelicalism waited until he was 50. And so I think that's why you get that, that sense of maturity coming from his engagement was just because of the time factor of it's far more impressive when somebody can say, this is what I've been doing for the last 25 years, not this is what I'm going to do next year. Mm -hmm. And those are just two totally different styles of communication. So um, I think th th I have more to say on that, but just want to stick that out there as you're talking about steadiness. Well, great minds, Nathan, because that's exactly where I was going to go next, because that is a remarkable feature of Tim Keller's life that his fame and notoriety came, came late. I mean, I don't remember how many years it was, but it was several, probably to the tune of around 20 years or something like that, that he pastored a small church in Hopewell, Virginia. And most of his congregation were very were, were much older at that point. Mm -hmm. And he himself was a much younger pastor. So that was he talks about that as a really important period of apprenticeship. And you know, here he is laboring away. Now, the work he's doing is, of course, significant, just as the work of, of any pastor is significant. But he's laboring away in obscurity, just in the technical sense, right? He's in mm -hmm. he's in a pretty small community at the small town with no notoriety. He's just, he's doing what he's doing. But this is him becoming a pastor, learning learning the craft of soul care and invested in these in these people and this community and, and growing as a person. So it's not until after that that he gets this, he and Kathy get this call to go to Manhattan, which must have sounded pretty <laughs> radical and crazy. Yeah, yeah at the time to, to uproot and go into, you know, the city of New York, a sort of pagan epicenter, and then, and to start Redeemer. I mean, beginning Redeemer, you know, so, and then that was, and that's a long process of that church mm -hmm. growing into the church it became and all of that. But yeah, Tim Keller actually wrote an article several years ago about how, if you're thinking about being a writer, you should maybe wait until you're around 50 years old. Because, mm -hmm. and, and he said, you know, he had a couple of different reasons for outlining that, but he basically, he said, you don't know that much yet and your views on scripture are going to change 
your views on your approaches to ministry are going to change. There are all of all of these, ideally speaking, if you're growing as a Christian into spiritual maturity, they're going to undergo refinement. But if you if you jump the gun, I mean, let's we can give some specific examples here, Nathan, Nathan, because people with there's a tendency in in Christian celebrity culture to take particularly a young voice and just catapult them into fame and to see them as a spokesperson for a generation. So the, I mean, you could give it one specific example. We'll just give this not to be mean, but just to be, to be honest, the I kiss stating goodbye phenomenon. Mm -hmm. I mean, this, he was 19 years old when that book was Josh Harris and it, it, Josh Harris and it rocketed up into the bestseller list. But we have to just, now we can, Hindsight's twenty twenty, but I, I want to say I, I wasn't aware of this book around that time. But I think quite a few just common sense oriented people would have said, "What does a 19, 19 year old know about relationships?" <laughs> and yet, this book is being used as as a sort of, you know, it's this litmus test for healthy approaches to relationships. He's nineteen years old. Well, surprise, surprise. Shoot, for, fast forward. The man has changed his views, and I mean, he's even gone so far as to apologize for that book. Now, that that's an example that runs the risk of being distracting, but it's it's a picture of of how there's this push often toward a kind of ambition: get out there, get published, make a name for yourself, get your voice out there. And Keller's approach is the opposite. I mean, I think you look at his life, and this this is not a man who is chasing fame or or notoriety. This is a man a very hard worker. Who who was is was diligent, worked hard at his at his craft as a, as a preacher, and also was a very strategic thinker as a minister, and did the best work that he possibly can. But I don't think it would be fair to say to, to look at his life and say, oh, he was chasing fame. Mm-hmm. It's more yeah. like this happened. This this happens to be. I mean, clearly the Lord blessed many of of Keller's efforts, and of course those who are around him, surrounding him, helping him, and and pushing him forward. But it's clear that he wasn't chasing after that. But I do think it's significant that Tim Keller, as we know him, didn't emerge until he was in middle age. <laughs> and that's and that's important just to point out here that statistically, if you're listening to this podcast, the vast majority of you are under 50 years old. So if you haven't uh, published some best-selling books or you know started a massive church that started a whole bunch of other churches, there's still time. You know, no worries. Well, I mean, an um, elephant in the room. I did. I have written a book, but it, it's not a bestseller at all. So there you so, go. That's maybe there that's you go. My Cameron's grace. book is okay to read because it's not that great. Is basic. No, there you go. It's not that's true it. at all. No, you should you should read it. It's helpful. Um, the the other thing about Keller that I think lends itself to the steadiness, and it, and it's connected to this idea of I won't, I'm not going to say late blooming because everything he did beforehand was deeply significant. And if we didn't sure. think you could, yeah. couldn't do anything significant before you were 50, neither of us would be speaking together on this podcast right now. But there's a, there's a, he had a very, and, and then given the context of Manhattan, for sure, he had a wonderful ability to understand culture without yielding to it. And I don't mm. think you can yeah. get there without a certain degree of really, real clear identity and real personal stability um, and integrity. Say something about that, because it, he seems to be, like you said, you mentioned this when you're talking about his sociological reading and understanding, even the way that he spoke. Mm-hmm. He he was aware of it, but he didn't succumb to it, I think is maybe the crudest yeah. way I can put it. 
Well, I think there's sometimes a, a real naivete, which I've experienced myself, when it comes to trying to reach people who really are not sympathetic to Christianity. The classic example and the phrase you know, that always comes to mind for me here is Friedrich Schleiermacher's stated aim to reach Christianity's cultured despisers. And the irony of that, Schleiermacher was a genius, absolutely brilliant theological mind, but in his efforts to reach Christianity's cultural despisers or cultured despisers, he was himself seduced by them mm-hmm. and ended up, I mean, because of, you know, Schleiermacher is really the guy who gives the most eloquent expression to the notion that Christianity is really something that is more existential and internal and something that occurs in your heart and almost and basically i mean he lay he gives you the blueprint for those who are going to come later on and demythologize scripture and and basically he's it's the beginning of the kind of mainline movement that happens but this was a sincere effort initially to try to make christianity palatable to those mm-hmm. you know who disagreed with it well, yeah, I mean, absolutely. That's a massive temptation. I mean, think about Tim, Tim Keller now in the pressure cooker of Manhattan, surrounded by people who are upwardly mobile, extremely smart, very successful, but also very down to earth. And the, I mean, yeah, if you're not steady, if you don't have a high degree of maturity, you the, the temptation is going to be to go along with those people to grow more and more sympathetic, to, to start watering down or to start just trying to adapt too much. Keller Be relevant had that to balance. New York. Yeah. Be relevant to, to New York. And Keller had that balance. He actually put it this way once in one of his lectures at Reformed Theological Seminary and when he was in Mississippi. And those lectures, by the way, are fantastic, the RTS lectures that he gave. But he talked about how there are two, there are two ways to go wrong in your preaching when it comes to this kind of balance. He says, on the one hand, if you under contextualize, and he says, I know contextualization is a dirty word. I get it. But let's, let's just set that aside for a second. If you under contextualize and you just, you just give them nothing but the word, nothing but exposition, and you just stick doggedly and rigidly to the word, and you, you have no view of culture whatsoever, you make no connections whatsoever. Well, you know, you can, you'll preach and you'll preach biblical messages, but nobody will come because they won't, they won't understand the significance for their own lives. But on the other hand, if you over-contextualize and you, you get really cool and relevant and you quote movies all the time and this is all you do and you just you get more and more sympathetic, you'll get, now this may be changing with our, with our negative cultural moment, but you'll get a lot of people, but nobody will grow. Nobody will be growing spiritually. Okay, so, so let's, you need say, a let's go through that again. Both. So yeah. if you, if you under-contextualize, yeah. no one will come. If you can over-contextualize, yep. People will come, but no one will grow. Right. Yeah. So you're you're gonna you're not gonna see any genuine spiritual growth in that scenario. So what you want is true. You want to open up God's word as a minister, but you also want to draw connections to the world and that we're living in now. You're not mm-hmm. trying to you're not trying to make it more palatable to people in the sense that you want to make it you want to adapt it to their needs. You're trying to show them how scripture speaks to our to to where where we are at how scripture dis- provides an accurate dis- description of reality itself mm-hmm. and that's part of why tim keller read widely but again you'll notice you get most of his 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 his, his sort of broader quotes 
in his Veritas Forum talks or when he's yep. giving a when he's mm -hmm. giving more of a topical message in his actual sermons, he's quoting mainly from scripture. Yep. Well, so he's still, I, I, but he's drawing connections. But yeah. Uh, so I want to say something about that use of scripture because he held things from yeah. scripture that were not culturally popular. Um, I mean, even when he mm -hmm. came to speak at Gordon Conwell, there was some pushback because he broadly, the best category, I guess, would be complementarian. And so some of the correct, yeah. female students thought, well, he shouldn't be allowed to speak at Gordon Conwell because of these, you know, so there was, you know, mm -hmm. it's not like he just, you know, was a, was a, a wet noodle about everything and bent around. However, no, he had some like, and I'm sure that that created no shortage of uh, consternation in Manhattan as well. Um, well, although I think do you remember would, when, I, well, you remember the biggest one with that though, was when he was in, when he was going to be given the Abraham Kuyper award at Princeton oh, yeah. university. That wasn't that long ago. Was really. It wasn't that long ago. It was, I want to say it was around 2017 or something like that. And he, that, re, that reward itself was actually rescinded because mm -hmm. of, because of his stance on female ordination and sexuality, both of those, he ended up delivering the lecture anyway, which was, I think, I mean, a lot of, you know, you, he was such a big character at that point, you know, he had such major stature that he was going to receive criticism no matter what he did. A lot of people thought that was him. Oh, you're, you're, you should basically not speak there now because they've done you this dishonor and all that. But he, he didn't really, he didn't essentially didn't mind the slight of not getting the, the award. And he went and delivered his message anyway, but he was but he, I mean, obviously he didn't try to adapt his position or change his stance to get that reward or anything right, like right. that. Right, well, so he was going but to teach anyway. not to get a reward. So, right. There you go. Yeah. So that's the difference. So, yeah. the, so there's this, this, this really solid scriptural fidelity there. But, um, and, and you, you alluded to this, um, Tim Keller had some serious academic muscle to him. And I remember, you know, I, I kind of always know in the way that he spoke and the things he referenced it, you know, that's there, but I remember him in a conversation with Jonathan Haidt and he's quoting stuff and he had led, he had read like Jonathan Haidt's PhD advisors work kind of like when you're, <laughs> when you're in a, in a conversation with somebody and you're like, Oh, I didn't know that's who your PhD advisor was. I read their, you know, blah, blah, blah on this. Like that's just a whole nother level of, mm -hmm. um, you have done your homework. Um, in a conversation and an academic understanding. So I think that's one of the other ways in which the real high fidelity to scripture, very careful with words, very aware of the culture that he was speaking to and academically understanding the the link and the connection between all, all three of those, but not relying on the academic knowledge for his preaching, um, but in his teaching and conversation in his, and I'm going to use quote, um, very winsome and graceful persuasion. Um, mm -hmm. He relied heavily on some of those academic resources. So um, I thought he balanced culture well, used scripture, uh, you know, supremely, and also the academic stuff was very much there as something that almost came through as something that he just enjoyed. And so I, I appreciated that. Yeah, I think that came out loud and clear as well that he did enjoy it. I mean, he he was clearly deeply curious and interested and. Also, the, the quality of the work that he would quote, he, I mean, I credit Tim Keller for drawing my attention to a lot of thinkers who I've come to really admire. One of them is Andrew Del Banco, mm -hmm. because Keller was, was fond of, of quoting him. Andrew Del Banco is an English professor at Columbia University, and I've benefited massively from the man's work. And it was Keller who drew my attention to him. But 
there was a sense in which, you know, if Keller was quoting the person, you were, there's a pretty good chance that this is a quality writer and a quality mm-hmm. thinker and their, their work is worth your attention. So he had a very discerning eye when it came to this stuff as well. But you used, you used a word that I think is going to be important here. And I think maybe this is where we sort of, we can conclude a little bit on this note on, a, on part of the, the importance of Tim Keller's legacy and also where he's drawn a lot of criticism in recent years because of the changing tone in our culture. So the word winsome, mm-hmm. it's funny. The, the salvos against certain <laughs> popular thinkers often are <laughs> come from First Things magazine. This, is just, this happened with David French. There's an article in there on Frenchism <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. By, uh, yeah, by, our, uh, by our friend. I can't remember this guy's name now. It's escaping me. The, the, the gentleman who, who, it'll come to me in a second. Wait, Amari. was Carl Truman connected Sorab to Sorab Amari. Oh, Sorab Amari. Okay. Yeah, so Sorab Amari writes the, the Frenchism piece criticizing David French. And then you have Sorab Amari and a couple of others starting to criticize Tim Keller. Very, you know, in, in less, in more sympathetic terms than, than, they, than they were David French. But basically, they're going after him because of winsomeness. And they're saying... In essence, and I want to make sure I, I try to represent their position well here as I say this, because I think, I suspect that some of our listeners may be wrestling with this one themselves. But Aaron Wren, I think, chimed in on, yeah, Aaron Wren yep. has chimed in on this one as well. And he, you know, so he's, we've talked about his thesis before, which is, I think, quite helpful, that we, we go through three different phases. There's the positive phase for Christianity, where it's seen as a good thing. Then there's the neutral phase, where it's got a little, it's got something to prove, but it still has a seat at the table. And then finally, from 2014 onward, he he looks at he dates this to the Supreme Court decision on gay marriage. It's the negative view. Christianity is viewed as a social ill, and here's here's a, a a moment, a cultural moment where people like Tim Keller are basically now no longer relevant. So the winsomeness approach worked in 1994, but now when Christian arguments are not received in good faith, and when Christians are seen as socially harmful and pernicious people by our cultural elites. Well, winsomeness just isn't going to cut it anymore. It's not going to win any favor. It's not going to persuade anybody. So we need to think about different tactics. We need to rethink our strategies for engaging culture. The winsomeness thing is outdated and irrelevant. And so it's a strategy that's ineffective. Do you think I've fairly represented that? Yeah, I think that's... um there's there's also a little bit of a, a power dynamic concern in there as well that if you are winsome you're going to get run over, um, right? And, yep. and you won't have the cultural influence that you should have if yeah. So there, that's that's a component of it. But I think broadly you got it. Yeah. So I think part of the part of Tim Keller's legacy is that he's helping us to see that winsomeness itself is not a political strategy. Mm-hmm. I do think it's. I mean, it is. It is strategic but it's not a political strategy. I think Keller's approach and his tone was motivated by his love for his neighbor. This was, this was his, his way of simply communicating, sometimes to those who were hostile to the gospel, in a way that was still in keeping with Christian virtue. Mm-hmm. And so if that's what he's doing, then... 
from a political standpoint, it would make sense to say winsomeness should be jettisoned. It's not going to work anymore. But from a theological or ethical standpoint, it would be totally wrong to say that because you practice love of neighbor and care for your neighbor and intellectual hospitality, whether it is effective in the moment or not. You're doing this because it is the right thing to do. And hey, actually, Cameron. by the way, yeah, let's hear it. Well, what's the, what's the, what phrase are people using for the opposite of winsomeness? If you're not winsome, what are you? I don't know that I'm hearing. Belligerent? Well, I mean, yeah, what's the... If you're not win- <laughs> Yeah, are you yeah, are you belligerent? I think probably if I'm gonna try to give a sympathetic voice here or be a devil's advocate, maybe something more like I'm being realistic. And so I'm not going to in some I'm not gonna feign kindness and hospitality when I'm in the face of hostility. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be blunt. I'm going to I'm going to be more, I'm not going to try to. So there seems to be this general assumption, Nathan, from some of these critics that Tim Keller and those of his ilk are trying to curry favor with Christianity's cultured despisers. They're trying, they're trying to, they're trying to find a way to appease them or something like that. And that's, that can happen sometimes. But if we're giving the benefit of the doubt, that is not what's going on. Winsomeness is being practiced not to curry favor, not to look cool, to fit in. It's being done because it's the right way for a Christian to comport themselves in the public square. As we've said, and in whether the past, it works dis- or not, discipleship is not yeah. a strategy. Precisely, it's not a strategy. So, just a just a few words there from 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 my end to say that I don't think that Tim Keller was misguided in his efforts. I don't think this was naivety on his part either that's a, that's another accusation that's come his way well yeah, okay. it's not going to work so, anymore you're yeah, yeah. But so, so like all right here's the here's the thing though so like five years ago maybe more i spoke at a church in new york and they said we're a granddaughter church of redeemer so with within tim keller's lifetime his church had planted churches that had planted churches so I was speaking at a granddaughter church of Redeemer within his lifetime. Mm-hmm. One of many. I don't know what the numbers are there. And so I'm just saying, if you want to talk about cultural change, okay, so maybe he didn't make huge stump speeches about who to vote for. But if you're listening to this and you just thought, well, you know, within my lifetime, maybe my church would plant churches that would plant other churches that I would live to see. That is significant kingdom cultural influence. Um, and so part of it, part of it to me is like, okay, winsomeness doesn't work as a strategy. Um, okay. What are we trying, like, what are we trying to do? Um, and if it was to plant churches, like it's hard to, it's hard to argue with the numbers on on Tim Keller's Mm -hmm. front there of a style of doing things. And so I think that's part of the reason you and I appreciated his style and his tone is because he got stuff done in the categories that we think really matter. Yeah. Um, and by and large was able to sidestep um, some of the other, because uh, the other silliness. And let me just throw out here, when, you're, when we're talking about the opposite of winsomeness as a style, that can, and I think largely is another form of cultural assimilation, where you can have a church that says, we're going to take a hard stance on this, because if we don't, people won't come. 
Um, but p- if people sure. come because you're doing that, the people probably aren't growing because you're doing that. And so there's just as much of a danger of assimilating culturally or capitulating to culture on tone and style and aggressiveness that are contrary to the teachings of Jesus just as much as there is on sexual ethics or fill in the blank on something else that people rail against. And so don't get all smug and adopt a conservative version of the thing that you're pointing out from a liberal direction to be a problem in cultural assimilation. Be very careful that you're preaching and teaching in a way that is helping people grow, not just bow to whatever is popular at the moment, because that, that, that thing can go both ways in a hurry. So a little bit of a rabbit trail there, but I think the danger of that is why somebody like a Keller is so important. No, and a helpful exhortation to all of us, actually. And so, once again, I mean, we wanted to we wanted to talk about Tim Keller because Ooh, can I say one is, more thing? Can I say one more do. thing before you? Um, I think Keller didn't overstate things that were clear enough on their own, and so he and and it wasn't. I don't I don't think this was a strategy of winsomeness. He would say, oh, "I don't know. I have to think about that in a debate." He would. Even his book, Reasons for God, is not a crisp, clear, hard, classical, apologetic text. It's, he's like, here are pointers. Here are things that indicate. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he was. He thought that what God had revealed is enough to not need to overstate or, or give a false certainty about some things that he wasn't quite certain about. So I think that's an admirable thing to um, remember as well. I just wanted to throw that in there as we bring this to a close. No, that's good. I mean, yeah, there's a there's a a real understatement to a lot of what he says, and it's it's again, it's in striking contrast to many of us who want to reinforce the point in as strong of terms as possible. <laughs> so, a life worth celebrating. It's worth pointing out also that you know, as Tim Keller has has died, you you could see this was a man of integrity, practiced what he preached. He was the same person off stage as he was on stage, had a wonderful, had wonderful marriage, wonderful friendships, great relationship with his family. So that's just, it's good to see. It's refreshing. So in some ways, I want to say, I think the best way to honor Keller is to say he was a normal Christian. Yeah. This was a normal and to be Christian thankful. man. And gratitude. Gratitude. Yeah. Yeah. Just a normal Christian man being faithful in the place where the Lord had him. It happened to be a place where there were a lot of eyes on him at the end of his life, and he was faithful to the end. And for that, we can be grateful. It's a good example. It's a good witness. So we can, it's bittersweet, but we can celebrate Tim Keller and be grateful for the work he did and his continuing influence. And now all of us go and do likewise. Be normal Christians. And if you're a normal Christian, your life will be magnificent because the Holy Spirit will be working through you and there'll be a power surrounding you that's incommensurate with little old you. Isn't that great? So thank you for listening. You've been listening to Thinking Out Loud, a podcast where we think out loud about current events and Christian hope. Thanks for listening to Thinking Out Loud. If you'd like to learn more about what we do, book Nathan or Cameron, or if you'd like to support us financially, whether through a one-time donation or on a monthly basis, you can do so on the donate page at www.toltogether.com. That's toltogether.com. And please consider leaving us a five-star rating and sharing this content with your friends. 
It really does help.